So Jesus sent her out to go, as uh, Jesus says, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. And this, by the way, is the first time Jesus refers to the disciples as my brothers. Today we will see that if the resurrection is true, and it is, if the resurrection is true, the church's offer of forgiveness to all who would come in and repent of their sin, to all who will come in and say we trust in Jesus, is as certain as Jesus himself saying you're forgiven. Think about that for a second. If the resurrection is true, and it is, the church's offer of forgiveness to sinners who would come in and repent of their sins and trust in Jesus have a certain assurance as though Jesus himself was talking to them. Let's read that passage, and then I'll pray, and then we'll uh, get to it. Our passage today is John chapter 20, verse 19 to 23. I'm reading from the ESV, and this is what it says. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is for hell. Let me pray. Lord, this is amazing that you would give us the responsibility um, of forgiving others as though it was you who was forgiving them. Holy Spirit, give us wisdom to understand this. Holy Spirit, open our minds that we may be assured in the certainty of your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. We deliver happiness. According to Zappos CEO, Team Shea, you win customers for life when you simplify the employee handbook into a sentence. A sentence like, we deliver happiness. Tony Shea tells a story of him going to another shoe company's uh, sales um, conference, and after a long day and a long night of just being out and hanging out with his buddies, he, um, they come back to the hotel room, and they're hungry, so they decide, we want some pizza. So they call the front desk and try to order pizza. Turns out you cannot get delivery into the room from Room service after 11 p.m., and it was well after 11 p.m. And Mr. Shea 
like any good CEO, had been bragging about his company all night. So someone challenged him. Let us call Zappos, which is a shoe company, by the way, to see if we can order pizza. You say you have great customer service, don't you? So they convinced someone to call Zappos. Again, which is a shoe company, by the way. Zappos is actually, <laughs> I mean, shoes. In Mr. Shea's words, the Zappos rep was initially a bit confused by the request, but she quickly recovered and put us on hold. She returned two minutes later, listing the five closest places in Santa Monica area that, we, that were still open and was delivering pizza at that time. Even though Mr. Shea knows telling this story is going to convince someone somewhere to cause apples to order pizza to prove this, he didn't care because it sells him, it, the story is so good and it, it just demonstrates the heart of his company, what they are about. We deliver happiness at any means possible. Now, of course, there are limits, but it took the sales rep about five minutes to figure out this. And if you, I mean, if you've ever been a manager of any, you know, any company or if you've ever worked in management, you hear the story and you're like, yes, that's what I want my folks to be about. In our passage today, Jesus says he wants his disciples to know one thing. There was one sentence that he wants his disciples to know about as they go out, as they get involved in all types of things, as they get involved in doing good works, as they get involved in in healing people, as they get involved in, you know, comforting people. He wants them to know one thing, and the one thing is this. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Let that be the guard that you have. Let that be the thing that, that mo- demonstrates who you are. Let that, that sentence motivate everything that you do. This is not the first time, by the way, Jesus is sending his disciples out. But like I said earlier, this is the first time he's sending them out as brothers. One of Goder and I's favorite places to eat is Chipotle. We love Chipotle. But whenever we are walking into a Chipotle, kind of go with this angst because we know someone is going to roll their eyes at us. Because at Chipotle, you get several opportunities to make decisions about what your food is going to be like. And I want to understand, certainly somebody is going to roll their eyes because we're either going to ask for more salads, more cheese, more sour cream, more hot sauce, more guacamole, extra meat. Oh, they love it when we ask for extra meat. Because then they ask us, do you want double meat? Like, no, I didn't ask for double meat. I asked for extra meat. <laughs> and frequently, they'll roll their eyes because they know what we are trying to do. So usually when we get down to sit down and eat our food, Goda and I will look at each other and say, why do these people act like the company belongs to their parents? It's a saying in Ghana, right? When someone acts so entitled to something, you ask them, is it your parents or something? You're acting like this belongs to you. See, when you have a stake in something, 
you act differently about it. And we expect you to act differently. And Jesus says, you are my brothers. Just as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Because of the resurrection, we have a stake in the Father's work. Jesus himself would say, as the Father is working, so I am also working. But he does not send us out empty-handed. And I want us to look at three things that Jesus and the Father sends us out with. The first is in verse 19. It says, we are sent out with peace. The second is in verse 20. We are sent out with joy. And the third is, my favorite, we are sent out with the Holy Spirit. First point, we are sent out with peace. In the ancient world, um, whenever, let's say, uh, a city or a nation will go out to war, um, say Rome went out to war and was, you know, it was going out on a military conquest, uh, the folks back at home are often very anxious about how that's going, right? And whenever there was victory, um, say Caesar would be in a hurry to send back message that there has been victory. And usually he will send a herald, right? He will send a herald to go tell the city, look, there's victory. Now you can back, get back to regular business. You don't have to be thinking about whether we should be leaving the city or not. You can go to the market. You don't have to be worried about saving money. Let's get back to regular life. And the herald usually, when they come back, the more detail they have about the victory, the better. Because that means Caesar really did win. The more they can, can tell you what happened, the better. And it's even better when they have a relic of the conquered king. If they had the crown that the king who, who dare raise his, his, himself against Rome had. The herald would bring this just to demonstrate, I tell you the truth, we have victory. Here is the crown of the conquered king. And this was just a foretaste of the peace, of the victory, right? But when Caesar gets back, when Caesar actually comes, he will bring that said king who dare raise himself against him and all his military commanders. So when Jesus appears amongst his disciples and announces peace to them and shows them his wounds, he's doing nothing less but telling them, look, we have victory, y'all. We won. There is victory. You have peace. It might not look like it, but you have peace with me. We won. You, you can taste the victory. Yes, Jesus spent three years with the disciples so that they would, they would trust him, so that they would be trusted witnesses. And yes, Mary did her part and brought the good news to the disciples. But it is clear <laughs> from our passage that the disciples, having heard this message, were not transformed. They were gathered in a room and had locked themselves. 
Hardly a sign that there is peace. Hardly a sign that they understood the implications of Mary's message. Hardly a sign that they believed that Jesus Christ was accomplishing redemption for the world. These are the guys that were most intimately walking with Jesus, and yet they missed it. They did not see the battle wounds. It wasn't until they saw the battle wounds they needed to see the battle wounds. And it's when they saw it that they knew there was victory. See, the early church has always made a big deal about the real bodily resurrection of Jesus. Because people already believed in a spiritual resurrection. Pagans who did not know God believed that there was a spiritual resurrection. That was nothing new. See, in John 11, when Martha is upset with Jesus um, for not coming on time to save her sick brother, Lazarus, Jesus told her, your brother will rise again, to which she said, she responded, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. But that was not what Jesus was talking about, is it? Jesus is about to raise Lazarus bodily. To dumb down Jesus' resurrection to a spiritual one robs him and it robs the church of a unique thing that happened on the cross. It only sets Jesus up as one of the many good moral teachers the world has had. It sets him, does not set him apart from Buddha. It does not set him apart from Muhammad. It does not set him apart from all the good teachers that the world has seen. The church did not take off because the disciples went around telling people, Jesus Christ rose up in my heart. <laughs> that is not good news. That's regular old news. That's something they already knew. It's not good news. It's something else. So Jesus showed up as a herald with good news in his body to demonstrate that there is victory. Jesus was the original herald. And this is the peace that Jesus sends his disciples out with. Which brings me to my second point. We are sent out with joy. We are told that it was evening when Jesus appeared to his disciples. In, Mark, uh, makes it, in Mark's gospel, he makes it very clear um, that the disciples were terrified when they saw Jesus. Supposing him to be a ghost or a spirit. Now you have to keep in mind, this is ancient Palestine, right? There isn't electricity everywhere. There aren't lights everywhere. After that, the disciples are trying to be inconspicuous as possible. <laughs> After that, they're not from Jerusalem. They don't know how things work in Jerusalem. They are hiding. They're in a foreign place. Their master has been killed. If they did this to Jesus, 
It's only a matter of time that they will be sent to the Romans themselves. So for someone to walk in uninvited while the doors are locked, it makes sense why they'll be terrified. They disturbed whatever little sanity they had left. Much more as someone that looked like something they've never seen. Have you ever seen a resurrected Christ? Have you ever seen a resurrected body? Do you even want to see, see a resurrected body with all your sins? Knowing that it demonstrated how unfit you are. The interesting thing is how unprepared these guys are to meet their Savior. These are people that were walking with Jesus. They were utterly unprepared. Not transformed by the message of the gospel. In a foreign land, not knowing what the outcome of the future is. And now you have Jesus in this body. Of course they are scared. I mentioned earlier, um, and you have to remember that these very same disciples were there when Lazarus was raised from the dead. Okay? And you might be wondering, well, if they saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, of course they believe in the resurrection. Not in this resurrection, though. The promise of the resurrection is not that we would wake up and see our bodies and like, oh, yeah, it's me. You would not be recognizable. That's the promise of Jesus. After that, um, Mary, you know, they've known Mary, right? She saw the resurrection. Lazarus was her brother. She was there when Jesus was raising Lazarus from the grave. So surely she must know something about the resurrection. She must have told them what they should be looking out for. Surely she must know what she was talking about. So why are they so devastated by Jesus' death? And why are they so devastated when Jesus appears? And why do, not they, why do they not believe Mary's message? This is not from any commentaries or anything, but from pure conjecture, and I think it's true. If the disciples are anything like you and me, sinners, it's hard to believe, one, a woman, bring the good news, how, how is she the one to first see Jesus? Not only that, she used to be a prostitute. How does she get to bring the good news? After that, she was demon-possessed. She had three strikes for the disciples. 
and therefore they did not believe her message. If God is to use this, these men, though, he has to humble them. It will be forever known that the first person to see the risen Lord Jesus is a woman. It's a woman who used to be a prostitute. It's a woman who used to be a prostitute possessed by demons. In verse 29, there is a slight rebuke of the disciples and an admonishment to us, but rebuke to them. In verse 29 of chapter 20, Jesus said to Thomas, who was doubting, he says, Have you believed because you have seen me? He says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. See, the quality of the message is not with the person bringing the message. The quality of the message is with the quality of the message. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Hallelujah. Can I tell you something, though? Jesus is still not ashamed to call them my brothers. He knew what they needed, and he knows what we need. My sister-in-law, Maribel, uh, Goda's younger sister, has autism. And one of the coolest things I observed when I joined the family is the way they communicate. Um, my favorite sign is her sign for a handkerchief. If you were standing there, you would have no idea what she's doing. <laughs> you would not be able to guess in a million years that she needs a handkerchief. But that's what she needed. And her sister often knows that's what she needs. And the joy that is usually filled in her heart when she gets what she wants, because no one else knows what she needs. Is the joy that filled the disciples when they see their friend Jesus raised from the dead. And you can imagine. So now they're, they're reduced down to 10 guys because Judas is gone and Thomas is nowhere to be found, right? Imagine these 10 guys hearing that the person standing in front of them is their friend Jesus. 10 guys. What do you think they'll do? Is that you? your nose look like that? Let me see that hand. Let me see the hand. Let me see that side. I remember when I was standing by the cross what they did to you. Let me see it. Jesus knew what they needed to see. Can I touch it? Can I touch you, Jesus? See, John would say in his gospel, in, uh, in his letter, we have seen him. We've touched him. And when they run into their buddy Thomas, guess what they told him? Thomas, you've got to see Jesus. You've got to see Jesus. You've got to see Jesus, Thomas. 
dude, if you see that nose on that guy, Did you know this is the message that turned the world upside down? A bunch of dudes running around telling other people, we've seen Jesus. Either that's the dumbest sales pitch ever, or it's true. A group of men running around Palestine and around the world telling others, we've seen the nail-pierced hands, we've seen the side. This is not a Jesus that resurrected in your hearts, friends. This is a real live person that turned your lives upside down. Which brings me to my last point. So we are sent with peace, and we are sent with joy, and we are sent with help. We are sent with the Holy Spirit. Before we proceed, I want, to, I want you to notice, I want you to notice that Trinity at work to convince these men that God is their father. God sent his son to die on their behalf. This little section that we are reading is jam-packed. But God sends his son, and now he's, he's sending the Holy Spirit to equip them to do the work that they need to do. We are told that um, Jesus breathed on them. And commentators are divided on the meaning of this gesture of Jesus breathing on them. Um, someone to take away the on them part because the on them is not added to the passage. But clearly, Jesus is not just exhaling. He's breathing. And this gesture is supposed to be connected to the fact that they are supposed to go out and forgive. Some commentators see this as a foretaste of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which happens in Acts chapter 2, right? John had been talking about the Holy Spirit coming, and somehow he has to put it in there somewhere. Someone to blend this with, the, um, with Pentecost and what happened there. Only problem is, John is specific here, and he says that this was the first day of the week. Um, so it's hard to say, is it the first day of the week, or is it 50 days after the Passover? Um, I think we should take it for what it is. Okay, it, it, I think it's something different. Um, I think the Holy Spirit is promised, and John is showing that God is faithful on his word. And he promises that he will send them help with the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing. He connects the Holy Spirit coming specifically with forgiveness. Okay, He's, he, he, he connects it with forgiveness. There's one more problem. <laughs> There's one more problem. Tell you the book's literally written on this, these like two verses. Um, the other problem is um, the, the Roman Catholic Church and a lot of Eastern Orthodox churches um, have used this passage to justify priestly absolution of sin. Um, Dick Lucas, looking at this passage, basically says that nowhere in the New Testament 
do even the disciples who get this spirit breathed on them ever claim to be able to take away anyone's sin? So for the church, for the Roman Catholic Church to be teaching that it has the authority and the power to take away sin is just false. So what should we do with this passage? What should we do with Jesus breathing on the disciples? As I said earlier in the beginning, if the resurrection did happen, and I think you can see why it needs to happen for, for any of this to be true, then the work that the disciples would do, okay, the promise that they would make to men and women like you and I, that promise is as certain as Jesus himself making it. Maybe you didn't hear me. If you're in a church today and you're in good standing, meaning you've been baptized and the church affirms that you know the Lord, that you are in the Lord, promise of this passage is that the Holy Spirit is sent through the church to assure you that your forgiveness is certain. Does that get in? Does that sink in? If you are in here today and you've confessed your sin to Jesus and you've come to the church and said, I want to be in the church, this passage is saying your assurance of, of forgiveness, Jesus, his relationship with you, is as certain as he himself saying, it is well with your soul. I got you. And like I said, the quality of this message does not come with, the quality of this message is not because of the packaging. Look at these guys. These, <laughs> these guys are going to be the people that Jesus is sending out. Mary is the kind of people he's sending out. Do you see why they need the Holy Spirit? Do you see why you need the Holy Spirit? Do you see why we need the Holy Spirit in our church? We will blow this whole thing up <laughs> if it was left up to us. If you are in the church today, it's as if you have eternal life. Because that's what the Holy Spirit, see Jesus is transporting you from here to heaven and he is going to make sure you get there. Yes, you know, you might get a hiccup here and there. Yes, there might be suffering on the road. But trust you me, your eternal certainty, certainty is as sure as Jesus himself coming beside you, picking up your hand and saying, I got you. Yet, there is also a somber note here. And the disciples are told. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, they are withheld. 
The responsibility of the church is very great. Not only to confirm people's relationship with the Lord, but to also warn people of what would happen if they do not have a relationship with the Lord. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as we saw, I implore you, we implore you, if you're sitting here today and you do not know the Lord, we implore you to be reconciled with him. If the resurrection did happen, and it did, that warning is also as certain as though you are on the edge of hell. We implore you to be reconciled with God. See, the responsibility of the church, see, there are a lot of things we should be doing. There are a lot of ministries we should be involved with. But let's remember this. As the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus is sending us to bring forgiveness. But to also warn those who would not reconcile themselves to God that there is a grave, there's a grave warning that he is not pleased with them. Is he pleased with you? It is well with your soul. Let me close us in prayer. Lord, your good, your good and your steadfast love endures forever. We did not choose you, but you chose us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who secures our eternal dwelling with you. You tell us that, Lord, you go to prepare a place for us. And it's often hard for us to believe that. You tell us that you will raise us up from the dead. And it's often hard for us to believe that. You tell us that all the things that we go through here and now, all the sufferings that we go through here and now, in comparison to the glory that will be revealed, it's a speck of dust. And it's hard for us to believe that, Lord. Holy Spirit, please come among us and assure us of our relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.